This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year, a Sunday that the uh, students come back. And I, too, want to extend a welcome uh, to you. We love it uh, when you're in Boone. We love it when you fill our streets, when you fill our Walmart, <laughs> when you fill our restaurants. But most, we love it when you fill this room. So welcome. We're glad that, that you are here. And if you are a freshman here um, this afternoon, this morning, whatever it is right now, um, it, it is true, we do not have a target in Boone, and it's too late to transfer. <laughs> About three months ago, my wife Tana and our two uh, college daughters, Olivia and Laura, traveled with Jessica and Christine Dagger to Beirut, Lebanon. I was to teach in a Bible college uh, and preach at the Alliance Church there. In the meantime, Tana and these adult girls with, with some of their cousins led by Sammy Dagger would make their way to Kurdistan, that's actually northern Iraq, to a Samaritan's Purse community center. There they were to do some food distributions for both Syrian and Kurdish refugees, hold a vacation Bible school for a few days for what they were told would be about 150 children, ended up being over 300. And then they were able to finish with a very great Operation Christmas Child distribution. It was a great week of ministry, and afterward they drove back uh, to the airport past Kirkuk, the Kirkuk that you see in the news, uh, on their way to Ir Erbil, which is where the airport was. It's also about an hour east of Mosul, and they f flew back to Beirut. And they did that literally two days before things blew up in northern Iraq with ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Of course, they've now dropped the IS, uh, Iraq and Syria. They're just is, is that what you call it? They, they want to establish an Islamic state under Sharia law throughout the Middle East, actually around the world. And, and so, why would Tana and these girls, or maybe you would ask, why would I allow my wife and my daughters, why would SP personnel put themselves at risk to travel to a war-torn area like that. Why? Well, to share the love of Christ with people who need to hear the gospel. Why would Dr. Kent Brantley and Nurse Nancy Whitebowl travel to Liberia to deal with an Ebola outbreak, putting themselves at risk? Why? In, in fact, if you've been paying attention at all, you know that they indeed caught the virus and almost died. Why would they do that? Well, to, to, to care for people in need, in the name of Christ, in hope, to pave the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would, would people give six months of their lives to travel to East Asia to teach English? Why would you even consider giving six months or a year of your life uh, to, to do that? Well, to, to pave the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I suppose begs a more fundamental 
question that is being variously asked and, and, and answered across our country in coffee shops and, and, and universities like our own and, and even in churches. And the question goes something like this, do people really need to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus in order to be saved? <laughs> I mean, come on. In the Middle East, isn't this holy war being waged in the name of, of religion? Why don't, we just, why don't we just leave them alone? And I'm not talking about political or military engagement, Iraq, Afghanistan. That's not what I'm talking. Why don't, we just, why don't we just leave them alone, let them believe what they want to believe as Muslims or, or Kurds, and that's actually two different religions, or, or, or in West African tribalism. I mean, does it really matter what they believe? I mean, well, won't they make it? In that question is increasingly being answered, yes, sure. Even in our churches, they're fine, they'll make it. I mean, come on, to think that we Christians alone have the corner on spiritual truth is just so, it's so arrogant, so condescending. Come on. I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ is really nice but, but, but it's, it's really not necessary, is it? Is that true? Well, let's take a moment to go back to, to, to last week and Paul's missionary journeys, which begs another question. Are missionary journey, are missions, missionaries even necessary? Well, let's go back to Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, specifically to the end of his, of his third missionary journey. He just spent um, about three months in Corinth from whence he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, telling them that he's, he's about to deliver an offering to, to Jerusalem, and then he plans, to, he plans to move his base of operations from Antioch in the east to, to Rome in the west, because you see, he wants to take the gospel to, to what he calls places beyond, to places is where the good news of, of Jesus Christ has, has yet been heard. He wants to go as far as Spain. But again, that, we're back to that question. Why? I mean, is it necessary? Well, he left Corinth and he headed east toward Jerusalem. He made his way, as he's going, he made his way through several towns, uh, encouraging believers, but he would only stay for a couple, maybe a few days because he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. In fact, he decided to bypass Asia Minor, which is modern day uh, uh, Turkey altogether, but he still wanted to encourage the believers there. So when he got to Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus, he sent for the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him. Now, we're going to talk about the office of elder more when we get to chapter three, but for, but for now... Um, know that elders are the spiritual leaders in, in the church. These were uh, men appointed by Paul or, or maybe appointed by his emissaries like Timothy and Titus um, uh, to, uh, to be leaders who were responsible to lead, feed, and now listen, and to protect the church. But, but protect from what? They're shepherds. In fact, the word, that's what the word pastor actually means. It's a shepherd. And so actually elders are shepherds or pastors and pastors are elders. Now we're going to leave that 
for now. But notice, I think it's interesting that Paul, I said Paul called for the elders, plural, in Ephesus. In fact, he told Titus when he wrote to him to appoint elders, plural, in every city. The point is, there, is to be a, there was to be a plurality of elders or pastors or shepherds or spiritual leaders in every church. Spell that out. No single church should have only one pastor or elder. There is to be a plurality to share the work and, and for mutual accountability. I mean, if there is only one elder or pastor in a church, who holds him accountable if he's like the grand poopah? Now, you may say, my church back home or some churches that I've been part of are too small to have more than one pastor. And that actually may be true. That is too small to have more than one paid pastor on the church staff. But regardless, every church, no matter the size, and actually no matter how old, because this church in Ephesus was young, should have a plurality of leadership, again, to share the work and for mutual accountability. So, Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. When, when they got there, he reminded them of his ministry among them, how he had been uh, faithful to testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. That's kind of interesting. He had done that in Ephesus. Ephesus was this the very pluralistic city. It was full of all kinds of religions. In fact, there was all kinds of religious syncretism. But hey, first and foremost was this worship of Artemis. It was the temple of Artemis there, which was considered one of the, uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had religion. Why take another one? They had plenty. But he, he did. He'd faithfully preach the gospel to people who needed to hear it. Because you see, Paul saw the message of the gospel as the most important message in the universe. And he saw the gospel as, as, that, the, 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 as, as something that should be guarded at all costs. Because you see, as we saw last week, Zeus and Hermes weren't going to cut it. Or, or whatever name you come up with today. He told these elders, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. As I've been going, people have warned me that bondage and affliction await me when I get there, but that's okay. He says, my life is nothing. I just want to finish the, the, the ministry that Jesus gave me, namely, and he tells us again here, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. It's all about the gospel. I'm going everywhere to tell people about the gospel. Here's my question, why? Well, then he, then he told these gathered elders this in Acts chapter 20. He says, elders, I want you to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's another word, overseers, elders, pastors, to shepherd, there's the word pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I, I know, because here, listen, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. This is their purpose. They want disciples around them. 
Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Here's what I want you to do, elders. Here's your job. I want you to guard yourselves and guard the flock. Here's my question. And guess what? The Holy Spirit's made you overseers to shepherd or care for the church. The church is so important that Jesus purchased it with his own blood. Now listen, I, I know after I leave for Jerusalem, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, it had been his experience for over 20 years in ministry. Wherever he went and preached the gospel, planted churches, false teachers would follow him, spreading their destructive heresy. In fact, many of his letters to churches at some point deal with false teaching. We know from our little survey last week that Paul did make his way to Jerusalem where he was arrested, jailed for two years in Caesarea, then two years in Rome. From Rome, he wrote those four prison epistles that we just finished, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon. There's fairly strong and reliable early tradition that tells us when he was, re- he was then released from prison in Rome at the end of Acts chapter 28. Some suggest that he even made it uh, to Spain. Don't know that for sure. But regardless, um, after his release, at some point he's traveling uh, with Timothy and Titus. We read about that in these books. And he leaves Titus in Crete and Timothy in Ephesus. They are his official emissaries with his authority to set things in order in their respective churches. Paul, as they're there, then wrote letters to Titus and Timothy, letters which became part of our New Testament that we call the pastoral epistles. Now, last week as we began 1 Timothy, we we saw its purpose, why Paul decided to write this letter to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. says this, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that, here's the reason reason I'm writing, here's the purpose, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And we noted from that verse two very important purposes for writing this particular letter. First, so that people would know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church. In other words, he writes about church structure and order and responsibility. It is a very important letter even to us today. I mean, I want you to stop it and consider. In the first chapter, we're going to find that he talks about false teaching. Is there false teaching in the church today? In the second chapter, he's going to talk about what we do in public worship, which is what we're doing, uh, uh, which is what we're doing this morning. Then he's going to talk about the place of men and women in ministry. That's a little bit controversial. Do you think there's a place for that today? Chapter three, he's going to talk about how uh, we choose our elders and our deacons. Is that important for today? Chapter four, he's going to nail those um, uh, false teachers again. He's going to chapter five. He's going to talk about certain groups within the church, people like widows. Do we have widows in the church today? How do we handle them? What about elders? Elders. What about, you can talk about slaves, and we're going to apply that to employees. Anybody here working a job? And then in chapter 6, I find this very interesting. In chapter 6, he's going to, he's going to peg those false teachers again because, you see, they thought that the ministry was a way to get rich. Do you think we have that issue in the church today? This, church, this letter is very relevant to us, the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. 
But now notice that he also called the church the pillar and support of the truth. Why? That's an interesting phrase. Why does he call it that? Because of the second purpose, and some suggest even the primary purpose that he writes, is to encourage Timothy to deal with false teachers in Ephesus who were perverting truth. It implies, I don't know, implies there's truth that can be perverted. Yeah, yeah, see, it seems Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 proved to be prophetic. It's been about five years now, and false teaching has indeed invaded the church. And it seems from a careful reading that this false teaching had come just as he had warned from elders within the church, from their own number. So right at the very beginning of this letter, Paul begins addressing this rather significant issue because the gospel is true, because the gospel is the most important message in the universe, and because the gospel must be defended, it must be guarded, don't mess with it. And because the gospel is necessary for every person on the planet. Look, look at the first few verses with me, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We're going to read that, but <laughs> we're only going to get to the first couple of verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Then he starts talking about these false teachers. I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than what it's supposed to do, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction of urging them to stop is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And these men, they've strayed from these things and they've turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matter, matters about which they make confident assertions. And he goes on the rest of the chapter to talk about these guys. But those first two verses form what is called the salutation of the letter. If you've been around, you know that he follows the typical letter writing convention of the day. And he identifies Paul as the writer, Timothy as the recipient. And then he gives a greeting. Look at those with me very briefly. Starting with Paul, the writer. Now, the very first word in my text says, Paul. Now, I... This is going to come as a bit of a shock to some of you, but some modern scholarship denies that Paul actually wrote this letter. You may hear that in a New Testament survey course that you might take at the university. Paul didn't actually write this letter. Why did they say that? The primary, a number of reasons, primarily because they say there are too many words that Paul um, uh, in this letter that Paul doesn't use in his other letters, which could actually be said about every letter that Paul writes. All that means is that Paul had a vocabulary. Uh, or, or that he, they, they said that um, he's dealing with some heretical teachings that didn't come about uh, until the second century, which uh, it's kind of interesting. It's pure conjecture since we don't know for sure what he's dealing with. 
And third, they say there is way too much church structure for this early time in church history, which is kind of interesting because it's clear from the rest of the New Testament that the church had elders and, and, and deacons and, and even widows. And, and so even that argument is weak. Well, if Paul didn't write this letter, who then did? They supply an answer. We've looked at this before. It's called pseudonymity. Someone else wrote in Paul's name, kind of like a ghost writer. This time, the scholars suggest this pseudonymous writer actually wrote all three pastoral epistles since the language and, and the circumstances are somewhat the same. I'm not, I'm not going to address all of this again other than to say the following. From the very earliest days, the church fathers, which were the guys that hung out with the apostles, accepted from the very earliest days, the church fathers accepted that Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. For the first 1,800 years of church history, it was accepted by the church that Paul wrote these letters. And I don't know, the letters say Paul wrote these letters. And not only that, a fourth thing is this practice of pseudonymity was clearly rejected by the early church. In fact, they said very clearly, if there was a letter that is purported to have been written by somebody that it wasn't, we reject it outright. They did not accept this thing. And yet along comes some liberal theologians in Germany, by the way, in the 1800s in the Tübingen School, who don't accept the inerrancy of Scripture anyway and say, Paul didn't actually write the letters. Okay, we're just going to accept that he did. And I could give you lots more scholarly argumentation for Pauline authorship, but I will spare you the details. And the reason that I go into that to this degree is because we do live in a university town. And in secular university towns across this country, this semester, you'll hear this stuff. What is interesting is how Paul identifies himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle, we know, is an emissary, one, a sent one with a, with a message. We know it was an official designation of the 12, plus Paul, who was appointed, all of them were appointed by Jesus himself. But, 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 but let's remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith. And so this sounds, this is another reason that people kind of attack this, it sounds so official. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, why does he do that? It would be like me writing an email to my son, Timothy, who lives down in Asheville, Scott, the senior pastor of Alliance Bible Fellowship, to Timothy, my biological and spiritual son. It's a bit f formal and and probably unnecessary. He kind of knows who I am. Until we remember why and to whom he's writing. Yes, this letter is a personal letter to Timothy, but Paul fully expected the letter would be read to the entire church. Remember last week, I pointed out that the very final line of the, um, of the letter is written in the plural, grace be to you all. Timothy was Paul's official representative, left in Ephesus to set things in order in the church, to include dealing with these false teachers, remember, who were very likely among the elders. So right at the outset, Paul says, 
Timothy, I am lending you my apostolic authority. Deal with this issue. And church, treat him, listen to him like you would listen to me. And frankly, it gives this letter apostolic authority for us. We must read it. We must study it in order to set things in order in this church and deal with false teaching when it arises. Let me stop right there just a moment. I've been saying over and over and over all morning false teaching. That begs an interesting question. False teaching. If all spiritual truth is, as we are told, valid, equally valid, no matter how contradictory, if it is all equally valid and to be equally affirmed and accepted, how can there even be such a thing as false teaching? Just something for you to think about. Paul thought there was. Notice, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, packed with truth. First, again, lending authority to his position, he says, I want you to understand, I, was, I want to remind you that I was made an apostle by the very commandment of God. I was not, this is not an elected position. I did not assume this position. God himself commanded me to be an apostle. In fact, you may remember that I was on my way to Damascus to persecute followers of the way, and Jesus said, enough is enough, and he knocked me to the ground. He says, Paul, now you are going to be my apostle. Sounds like a command to me. By the command of God, our Savior. Now, when you hear the word Savior, who do we normally and automatically think of? Jesus, of course. I mean, he's called Savior many times in the New Testament, and rightly so, because he's the one that came here and, and did the work of salvation, suffering on the cross. And, and not only that, we are tempted, very likely, to take things a bit further. Jesus is the one who brought about salvation. And God the Father is like the big one, the big God, the, the mean one, the offended party in heaven. Now, he's in heaven, angry at humanity, and, and would have remained angry if the Son had not stepped in and rescued us. And we kind of get this picture of the Father, listen to me, as a reluctant participant in this salvation drama, right? I mean, how do you see the Father? Now, I don't know about your relationship with your earthly father and how that has impinged upon your understanding of God the, the Father, but do you see God as an angry judge who seeks only to dispense judgment and condemnation, but doggone it, is forced to forgive because of his son's work on the cross. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is interesting to note that Paul in 1 Timothy uses the word Savior three times, all referring to the Father. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says it this way. This, and he's talking about praying, this praying is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Is that the picture that you have of the Father? One who wants everyone to be saved. It is true that God hates sin, that He will judge and condemn unrighteous, ungodly sinners who do not accept the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the most famous verse in the Bible tells us God, the Father, so loved the world that He, the Father, sent His Son into the world, His most precious Son. I want you to understand that God loves this world, and no matter what you have thought about Him, I want you to understand that He loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to be saved. He is God, our Savior. It is sometimes rightly and um, said about the eternal plan of salvation that it was the Father's plan carried out by the Son and now applied by the Spirit. In other words, all three members of the Trinity were involved in your salvation. If you are saved here this morning, it is because the Father willed it. It is because the Father loves you. You need to stop seeing him as an angry tyrant whose anger needed to be assuaged by the son and start seeing him as a father who loved you so much that he sent his most precious possession, his own son, to die for you. The father loves you. He is God our Savior. Paul goes on to speak of Jesus, our hope. Hope in uh, Paul is always uh, a rock-solid assurance, and it always has a, a future or eschatological ring to it. We have a future hope because of the past and present work of the triune God in saving us. Notice in these few short words, Paul takes us from eternity past and God's plan of salvation as God our Savior to eternity future when our hope in Christ will ultimately, most assuredly be realized. Paul then identifies the recipient of the letter. Went over this last week. I won't belabor the point. Timothy was perhaps Paul's closest co-worker. Likely came to faith in Christ during Paul's first missionary journey. Went with him on the second and, and third journeys. Point is, Paul saw Timothy as his true, the word could be translated, genuine child in the faith. It is a, it is a term of close and affectionate endearment. He is, you are my genuine, you are my true Child, and you have proven it by years of faithful ministry. This is the idea. You're genuine. Paul gives his traditional greeting, only in this case he adds a word. Letters that day, you usually you would identify the writer and then the recipient, and then there would be some greeting. And it, usually that's what it would say, just greetings. Well, Paul took that word greeting, uh, which sounds a lot like, in Greek, sounds a lot like grace, switched a few letters around and made it grace. Grace be to you, Timothy. What did, he, what did he left Timothy in Ephesus to do? Deal with false teachers. Do you, think, do you think for a moment that there was a need for ongoing grace in Timothy's life? And then he says, peace. And this was the traditional Jewish greeting. Shalom. God's well-being be with you in the midst of this very troubled church where you will no likely be opposed. Peace. Pe peace, Timothy. And then in the middle of that, he sandwiches 
only to Timothy in both First and Second Timothy and none of his other uh, letters. Grace, mercy, and peace. Triad of Christian blessings coming from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If grace is getting what we don't deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss that. See, if I, said, if I wrote a letter to you and I said, grace to you from the Father and from Scott Andrews, you'd go, what? He is clearly equating the Father and, and the Son here. And don't miss, don't miss that in this first two verses, which is one um, sentence in the Greek, one sentence in the Greek, that he mentions Christ Jesus three times. I don't know, I, how many days can you go before you mention Christ Jesus? One sentence, three times. I counted, by the way, not to three. I counted all of his first, in, in, in the first sentence of all 13 of his letters, he uses the name Jesus Christ 31 times. He was fully consumed with Jesus. Typically, Paul would then launch into a thanksgiving, perhaps a prayer. Most letters then, you would do that. You would offer a prayer for your readers. Uh, usually, it would be a prayer for physical health. Paul typically offered a prayer for spiritual health uh, uh, and, and, and then offer some thanksgiving. He does neither one here. Highly unusual. The only other book where he does that is in his letter to the Galatians. Those churches that he founded in his first missionary journey, and that is because they had been sucked in by false teaching. And he's a little upset. And so after, his, after that salutation, he jumps right into confronting them. He does the same thing here, not because he's upset with Timothy, but he's upset that Timothy is having to deal with false teaching in this young church in Ephesus. And then the rest of chapter 1, and this is about as far as we're going to get today, the rest of chapter 1 deals with these false teachers in um, Ephesus. Uh, put the outline of the, uh, the rest of the chapter up there for you. We're going we're gonna to see that he exposes them. He talks about uh, and how they misuse the law. He's going to talk about the proper use of the law or sound teaching. He's going to give an example, which happens to be himself of sound teaching, and then he's going to contrast uh, false and sound teaching. And so he, he starts by telling Timothy, he reminds him, the reason that I left you when, when I went to Macedonia is to instruct certain men. He doesn't even name them, but this is a pejorative term, to instruct certain men. And everybody there, Timothy and everybody in the church, would know who he was talking about, not to teach strange doctrines. Strange doctrines. You see, strange doctrines are in opposition to that which the apostles had taught. In other words, this teaches us that there is objective, the objective truth of Christianity that is to be received, and anything that opposes that, anything that goes against that, anything that contradicts that is to be um, exposed, rejected, and not received. This this, this stuff about tolerance that we are being taught today, that every belief, no matter what is held, is to be received, affirmed, and accepted, is not true. It brings us back to our introduction. Given our country's pursuit of pluralism and tolerance, 
doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe something. Believe it sincerely. Believe whatever you want. I'll believe whatever I want. Doesn't matter if they contradict each other. All spiritual truth is valid and to be accepted by everyone. Paul says, no. The gospel is true. The gospel, as the apostles taught it, is true. And it is to be guarded. And it is to be proclaimed. And, it, and anything that opposes it is to be rejected. Listen very carefully to this morning as we close. You can choose to reject Christianity if you want to and accept another world religion to your eternal peril. You can accept all, uh, reject all religions if you want to to your eternal peril. But the one thing that you cannot do that is increasingly being done is accept Christianity and say, well, everyone else is okay too. We ought to just leave them alone. In other words, let me say it very clearly, you cannot be a Christian and a pluralist at the same time. The Bible will not allow it. And again, you may be sitting there saying, see, this is the problem with Christianity. This is the problem that millennials are having with the church. You guys are so exclusive. You think you're right, and you think everyone else is wrong. I want you to understand that that is a tenet of the Christian faith. It's what the Bible teaches and if we call ourselves Christians, we must accept what the Bible and the Christian faith has historically believed and taught, not with a smug arrogance. And I understand a problem with that, but with a loving and passionate desire for others to come to exclusive faith in Jesus Christ. It is, after all, why people go to Iraq or to Beirut or to China or to Liberia in harm's way because there is one objective truth. Let's stand for prayer. Uh, Father, uh, we, we, we have been reminded this morning that the gospel is the most important truth in the universe. And that it is not only to be held in high regard, that it is not only to be guarded, but that it is to be proclaimed. And attacks against it that contradict it must be rejected. And I pray that you would help us in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture to remain true to the Christian faith. That we would remain true to the gospel and that we would remain true to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.